If you're able to uh, stand with me, I'm going to read Genesis chapter 22. Uh, we're going to read the text together, verses 1 through 19, this, our text for this morning. After I read, <clears throat> I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And you'll respond by saying, thanks be to God. And of course, you're, you're thanking the Lord that he would give us his word so that we can um, understand who he is. But also, as you say, thanks be to God, let it also be for you a time where you um, are uh, wanting the, to say to God, the things that you teach me and show me today, I want to say yes to and I want to obey. I want to I obey your word this morning. So starting at Genesis 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here, am I, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place uh, from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son, Isaac. And he took the hand of fire and the knife. And so they both went together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, he said, here I am, son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, go, God will. uh, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they both of them went together. And when they came to the place in which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there. He laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this, to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And an angel of the Lord called to Abraham for a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and would not and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned uh, to his young men and they rose, went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived in Beersheba. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You have a seat. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Um, We ask, God, that as we look at your word this morning, that you would cause us to be able to see and understand how it points us to Jesus. Um, We know all the Old Testament is about him. And so we pray that as we look at this particular story about Abraham and Isaac, that you would help us see how it points us to Christ. Um, And as we see Christ, God, I pray that you would cause our affections to be stirred for Jesus, um, that we would deeply... Uh, love him because of the the cross. Um, And as we think on this Christmas season and the coming of Christ, that you would cause our hearts to rejoice in the coming of Christ for the salvation of our sins um, and our our souls. I ask for myself, Lord, I pray that you would help me um, speak clearly. I pray that you would help me uh, teach the word correctly, that you would keep me from any kind of error. And Lord, um, all the things that are good and right that you want me to say to this particular people in this particular room at this service, Lord, that you would you would guide my heart to say those things and the things that I shouldn't, you'd keep me from it. I'm 
totally dependent upon you, Lord, to be able to uh, preach your word. So please come and help me by the power of the Holy Spirit to preach and help me and all of us to hear by the power of the Holy Spirit and understand your word. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is the second week of our Christmas series that we're looking at. And the Christmas series um, and all Christmas series are meant to point us to understand who Christ is. Christmas is about an anticipation in our heart, looking and thinking about December 25th is the day we celebrate, which is the coming of Jesus. And so this season, as we, as we preach through, and as you, maybe you're going through Advents at your, at your house is meant to cause within your heart anticipation as you think about the coming of Christ, because when Jesus came, it's supposed to cause within us great rejoicing. And so as we look at the text this morning, um, pray, pray that the Lord would help you this Christmas season have an overwhelming rejoicing at the fact that Jesus came uh, and died for us and became a boy as an incarnate uh, son of God and then grew and then eventually lived a perfect life and went to the cross for us. And so uh, ask the Lord to give you a spirit and and, and, and during this time, a a spirit of rejoicing during this Christmas time. Rejoicing is um, a choice for you to make. You can choose to rejoice during this time. So ask the Lord would, would do that. So as I said, this is our second week. In the first week, last week, Chris preached and he looked at Genesis chapter three, uh, really one through three, and um, as, a, as a foundational text to help us understand uh, as we're talking about a, a sermon series called The Coming of the Snake Crusher. It all comes from Genesis chapter three, which is in the fall. So I want to I read maybe the key text from last, one of the key texts from last week to give us a little bit of a foundation as we go into Genesis. Genesis chapter 22. So uh, in the fall, which is whenever Adam and Eve ate of the fruit that they weren't supposed to, uh, and they, when they fell, all mankind fell and the earth became, um, and all creation became uh, broken. Uh, in that moment, God comes and he, he makes these kind of uh, prophetic declarations over Eve and the serpent who is there. And he says this, I will put enmity, enmity between you and the woman, between the serpent and Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring. So between all of those who would follow the serpent, who are follow Satan, Lucifer, whatever you want to call him, and all those who would follow Christ, and namely her offspring is Jesus. There's going to be enmity or strife between Satan and Jesus. And then he says this, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So Jesus shall bruise the head of the serpent. Uh, if you ever killed a snake with your foot, you just stomp it down, it's dead. And so he's saying, ultimately, one day, the serpent crusher, Jesus, is going to come and put an end to Satan. But before that happens, and it said, you shall bruise his heel, there's going to be a moment where Satan is going, or the serpent is going to strike at Jesus, and that's the cross. And at the cross, before the resurrection, everybody thinks, oh no, the serpent is victorious until the resurrection. And when Jesus comes back to life, that is the, the crushing of the head of the serpent where Jesus is ultimately victorious. And so we looked at that last week. And so now as we're reading um, uh, in Genesis 3, we, we're looking for this word offspring. I will put enmity between your, uh, you and the woman, between her, your offspring and her offspring. So we know that there's an offspring of the woman coming. And so as we're reading the Pentateuch, that's just the first five books of the Bible, as as um, readers of the Bible, you're looking for the offspring. Every, every Israelite and everyone who, of the church, if you are or just a non-Christian, as you start reading Genesis and you start reading through, every single one of us should be thinking, who's the offspring? Who's the offspring? We're all reading this with great anticipation. Oh, there's going to be an offspring. This offspring is going to be the one that's the Messiah. This Messiah is going to be that's going to ultimately 
defeat Satan, sin and death and everything. So I'm looking for the offspring. Who's the offspring? And the, all of the Old Testament is pointing us like, is this the offspring? Nope, not it. Is this the offspring? Nope, not it. Is this the offspring? Nope, not it. Sinner, sinner, sinner. These guys can't be the offspring. And we keep going. And all of the Old Testament is eventually pointing us to Jesus to where we see, oh, here's the offspring. He's the one that lives the perfect life. And so last week we saw um, in Genesis 3, as Chris preached, uh, this beginning of helping us see that we are all now readers of the Old Testament, um, anticipating this offspring who's going to come and set everything right. So as we get to Genesis 22 uh, today, we are in the midst of looking at these offsprings wondering, oh, is this, is this the one? Is this the one that's going to finally come and set all things right? So as I read the story, we read the story of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham is just a regular guy, not necessarily a follower of Yahweh at all. Just a regular guy, a pagan guy. Um, and God knows that he would be a man of faith. And this is before there is any Israel or anything. He comes down and he finds Abraham and he says, Abraham, I want you to be the father of all the Israelites. They don't even exist yet. You're going to be the first one. You're going to have a son and he's going to have a son. And then eventually this is going to be so many children everywhere. They're all going to be called Israelites. And I'm choosing you to be the one that starts it all. There's nothing great about you. Nothing great about any of yourself out of sheer mercy and grace. I'm choosing you, Abraham, to be the, the guy. You're, you get to be the father of all Israel. And so before we get to Genesis chapter 22, where we're reading uh, the story that we read, I want to read um, what's called the Abrahamic covenant. That's where God says, you get to be the guy who's the head of all Israel. We're going to see that in three different times before we even get to Genesis chapter 22. Uh, we're going to see it in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17. And this just um, him explaining how you're going to be the, the father of all Israel. Three different times. Here's the first one, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, his name was Abram at this time. God changes it to Abraham. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you, this is pretty amazing, in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Imagine, imagine, like if everybody on earth was blessed because of you and all of your family. This is the, the covenant that God makes, the promise that God makes. Well, if you keep going, God tells him this covenant again in Genesis chapter 15. After all these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue to be childless. Like you said, I'm going to be the father of all these people. I have no children still no children. How's this going to happen? They only have one heir and his name's Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you've given me no offspring. And here it is that term. We're like, okay, wait a second. So maybe he's not the guy, but there's supposed to be somebody coming. That's going to be the offspring. That's going to set everything right. And a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, this man, this, this heir, Eliezer, he's not going to be the guy. Um, your very own son's going to be the heir. And he brought him outside and he said, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted to him as righteousness. And this is one of the first times where we see um, that Abraham was a man of faith. It's, it's faith that saves us. 
not rule keeping and law keeping. We're in Genesis. Like law hadn't even happened and doesn't happen until Exodus 20. So we know from reading the text that faith is what saves. And that's where when Paul's writing in Romans pointing back to the Old Testament, he's he's trying to help you see law keeping doesn't save. Law doesn't even happen until Exodus 20. What's saving even in Genesis is faith. And we have this declaration that Abraham was a man of faith. And so it was counted to him as righteousness. The same with us. When we have our, we put our faith in Christ, it's counted to us as righteousness. Now, if you keep going through Genesis and you get to chapter 17, uh, God comes in and helps him understand the covenant's going to happen. He's, he's aged more. He's a hundred years old. His wife's 90 and he still doesn't have any children. He's, he's had with, with his wife, Sarah, he's had one child that he wasn't supposed to. And he's like, his name's Ishmael. He's like, let this son Ishmael be the son of promise. He's like, no, it's going to be Sarah. Here it is. Verse 15. God said to Abraham for Sarai, your wife, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall, uh, not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her and I will bless her. And she shall become uh, nations. King of peoples shall come from her. And Abraham uh, fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, um, shall a, a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Now, I know back then we can read that movie. Like, back then it was different. No, no, it's not. I mean, he's. She was 90, like, like 90 here. And like 90-year-old women don't get pregnant here generally. 90-year-old women back then don't get pregnant generally. 100-year-old men aren't usually dads, like first-time dads. And back then, 100-year-old men were not first-time dads. If you keep reading the text, he, he kind of reiterates it over and over. Like, she's old. How's this going to happen? She's old. And so this is not normal. And Abraham said to God, he looks over at Ishmael, his son that he wasn't supposed to have. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Or let him be the, the offspring. And God says, no. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish, here it is, so we have, know something more about Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So we're reading, we're like, okay, now we got a little bit better picture. It, we know that from Adam and Eve, we're going to have this offspring. We travel down a little bit through Genesis and now we see, oh, it's Abraham offspring, Isaac. Maybe Isaac's going to be the offspring, like the one who's going to set everything right. Well, we know from this side, it's not, you can keep going and eventually you get to Jesus, but we're reading here. And so we know as a reader, okay, Isaac's the promise. So when we get to chapter 22, we, we already know Isaac is the offspring. I mean, he is the one that's going to set it all right. He's the one that we're thinking is the, is the, the coming one, even though he, Jesus comes later. And so when you get to chapter 22, when you see uh, after these things, God tested Abraham and he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, go to the mountains of Moriah and offer Isaac as a burnt offering. We're just like, wait a second. What? I thought he was the promise. I thought he was the offspring. How is the serpent going to get his head stomped if Isaac's dead? Because it's supposed to be the offspring who's supposed to do it. And now he's dying. How's this going to happen? Well, Moses, who doesn't want us freaking out as we're reading Genesis chapter 22, uh, inserts a little phrase in verse one so that it's, there's no like drama, really big drama for us. So and it says, after these things, God tested Abraham. Now, if that phrase wasn't there in verse one, as we read through Genesis 22, we'd be freaking out like, oh my goodness, what is going on? Is he going to live? He's not going to live. But he tells us from the beginning. So we're not kind of freaking out as we're going through 22. Like, okay, 
God's testing him, so something's going to happen. If that little phrase wasn't there, we would, we would a little bit be like, oh man, how's the offspring going to survive? But we see God test to Abraham, so as we go through chapter 22, we know God's going to do something. Namely, which we can, if you look at verse 14, verse 14 is the, the key verse of this chapter. Verse 14 says, sorry, Abraham, call, Abraham called the, the name of that place, the Lord will provide as it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Also, we see it in verse eight when Abraham answers his son, God will provide. So the big idea of chapter 22 is the provision that God is going to provide for us. And so you can go ahead and put, there it is, the provision of the sacrifice. So as we're looking at the, this big idea in chapter 22, that the big idea is provision. There's, there's lots of other important things in this chapter. There's no doubt about it. Um, Isaac and the ram and Abraham and faith and all these other things. They're all important. The big idea of this chapter, I think, is provision. So as we're going through chapter 22 now, we know the big idea is provision. There's four little things I want us to see about provision. Four little things I want us to see about the provision. Because ultimately this provision is made for Isaac to be spared which points us to the fact that ultimately Jesus is the provision for us to be spared from our sin. So it points us to Christ. So before we get into the text, we all have this big question, right? The big looming question over us all, as Seinfeld would say, the big matzo ball hanging over us. You got to answer this big question, which is the obvious one. How is it that God, who's good and benevolent and merciful and kind and generous... And all these things that we know about God. How is it that God could ask Abraham, a father, to offer his son as a sacrifice? I mean, I have three sons. The idea of doing that just is it's almost breathtaking. How is it that God, who's supposed to be good, is, is going to ask it? How does it not make him malevolent or malicious or somebody that can't be trusted? How is that possible? Well, that's a good question. But I think that the way that we can answer that question as we go through, we'll answer it. But instead of staying in chapter 22 and just looking at it as as the kind of question, take one big step back and look at the whole Bible and ask this question instead. Ask this question instead, which is, how could God, the Father, offer his only son, his only innocent son, as the sacrifice for all of us wretched sinners. And when we think the big story of the Bible is the fact that a father sacrificed his only son, well, it helps us, I think, get a good picture of how we can answer that question in Genesis chapter 22. I'll answer the question as we go through. I think it's, uh, I think it's a good question, but it's answered for us. So let's look here at the text. Um, God knows what he's doing when he's asking Abraham to do this. Um, Asking Abraham to do this. So after these things, God tested him. So we know that there's a test here. And said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac. That's repeated many times. Take your son, your only son, pointing us to Christ, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains of which I shall tell you to go. So God's testing him. And he's telling him to offer his only son. We know that one chapter away or one chapter over to the left in 21, one, the Lord visited Sarah. And he said, the Lord said to Sarah, as he had promised, um, 
He Lord, the Lord did this here as he had promised. So we know in 21, one, the promise is fulfilled through Isaac. Like it is Isaac. He is the offspring. And if Isaac dies, then that's it. The, the whole thing's over. And so Isaac has to live. And so God says to do this. And I, there's three simple imperatives given to us in verse two or commands, uh, take Isaac, go and offer him, do those three things. And so as we're reading through this, we, we know God tested Abraham, but Moses, even as he writes, as he writes, God tested, um, Moses writes in such a way that we're, we're put into the story and we're following on along the narrative kind of in the person of, of Abraham. We're, we're reading and seeing the story as Abraham's seeing the story. And we're, we're supposed to kind of feel the emotions and see the sights that Abraham's seeing. Well, I don't think we're in Isaac's place. We're in, we're in Abraham's place, the father's place, looking and seeing this whole thing happen. Um, we, we know in the big picture what's going to, but Moses writes it in such a way that we're, we're put in the perspective of Abraham watching this. And Abraham's told, take Isaac, go and offer him. Take your son, your only son. And as I said, this is said in 12 and 16 as well. And so what we see here is this. The first thing about sacrifice or or provision is that we can trust God during all times of trial. We can trust God for our provision. We can trust God in all things. Um, Notice in verse 5 where we talk about trust. Uh, So the first thing is trust God during all times of trial. This is certainly a trial for him. And the thing that God wants him to do is trust. Even in verse five, we can see this. And Abraham said to his young men. So when Abraham goes on this journey, he takes two servants with him. And when they get to the place, he looks at the two servants. He's got little Isaac here. uh, And he says, um, he says to the two young men, to the two young men, you two guys, you stay here with a donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship. And then it says, and come again to you. Now, in the Hebrew, the I and the boy, I and the boy uh, applies to all those particular verbs. I and the boy are going to go over there. I and the boy are going to worship. And I and the boy are going to come again to you. So he knows the command is I and the boy are supposed to go up there. I'm supposed to offer him as a burnt offering. And somehow, even after I offer him as a burnt offering, I and the boy are going to come back. How's that supposed to, how's that supposed to happen? Um, well, what we see here is that it's going to, and namely we know it's going to happen because, um, God is going to make a provision, but Abraham doesn't know how it's all going to unfold. So what we know is this, Abraham trusts God during this trial. He just totally trusts God in his mind. He knows that he can trust God. He's thinking to himself, well, um, God's going to do something. He's going to make it so that we, we can come through this. I know that he is. Now you could be asking, what exactly does Abraham think is going to happen? Because he has this amazing trust. What does he actually think is going to happen? Well, in this particular text, Genesis 22, we have no insight into the mind of Abraham to know exactly how he thinks it's going to happen. But good news, because the writer of Hebrews who's inspired by God, actually tells us what's going on in the mind of Abraham. And you might say, well, how does he know? Well, because he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's how we know. And if somebody wrote it in the New Testament about something that's happened in the Old Testament, then we can trust that when this writer says, this is what's going on in Abraham's mind, then this is what's going on in Abraham's mind because this writer who wrote Hebrews, whoever you think it is, Paul or Luke or Barnabas or Rando, like who knows what, but whoever it is, He tells us exactly what's going on in Abraham's mind. And so we know what's happening. So when he says, um, we can, 
when he says, I and the boys are going to actually come back. This is what's going on. So if you look at Hebrews chapter 11, starting verse 17, this is what's going on into the mind of Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had renounced, I'm sorry, he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That's a big deal because we know offspring's a big deal in Old Testament. And then here it is. Verse 19 tells us what's actually going on in the mind of Abraham uh, when he says to those two servants, we'll both be back. I'm supposed to offer him up as a burnt sacrifice. I'm going to offer him up as a burnt sacrifice and we'll both be back. Here's what's going on in Abraham's mind. He considered that God was able even to raise him, Isaac, from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So right then, when he looks at those two servants and said, we'll be back, it's because he knew that even if I have to do this, God's going to raise Isaac from the dead because Isaac's the offspring. So we'll both be back. That's amazing trust. That's the kind of trust that, uh, as we're talking about provision, that God is saying, this is the kind of trust that you have to put in the provision of Christ. This is saving faith. Trust God for your faith. Abraham is so confident because he knows that God can even raise him from the dead, which means if he knows that God can raise Isaac from the dead, then we also know this, just as Abraham trusted God that he could run, raise Isaac from the dead, we must actively remind ourselves and be trusting in Christ who has actually raised us, not just himself, but us from the dead by dying on the cross in our place. So when we say trust God, this is the kind of faith that's necessary for faith, for, for salvation. Trust God for uh, the provision, namely Christ. So since God has provided us his son for our salvation, Jesus fully obeyed God the Father in time of his trial and went all the way to the cross obeying him so we can trust him in our lives. Anything that's going on and ultimately for your salvation. So trust God for the provision. Trust God during trials. The next thing I want you to see is when we get to verse 3, um, we're going to, see this amazing, uh, obedient life of Abraham to God. Verse three. So Abraham rose early in the morning. Speculation. I think he rose early because he never slept. Like he knows what's going to happen, happen, have to happen the next day. And there's just like, how do you sleep through that? Like, uh, I can get a good rest on that one. No, sorry. Toss and turn. I can't sleep anymore. We're getting up. I'm done. I'm done sleeping. So he gets up. Total speculation. Um, the Abraham, rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took the two young men with him and his son, Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went uh, to the place of which God had told them. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes. He saw the place from afar. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here. And he took, this is verse six, he took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the hand of fire and the knife and he carried them. I think it's funny that he gave all the heavy work to his son, Isaac. You, you carry the wood. I'm just going to carry the knife and fire. <laughs> I find that funny. You can do all the hard work. Um, so, hey, I'd still do it myself all the time. Hey, son, you carry the heavy stuff. I'm old now, so my back hurts. So he, he gives the heavy stuff to his son. He takes the easy job. And then verse 7, uh, they're walking up there. And all of a sudden, and, and Isaac, I don't think, Isaac's not a wee toddler that he doesn't get what's going on, right? He's able to carry wood. Enough wood that's his burnt sacrifice. And so he also asked this question. So he's, he's big enough to where he's getting there. He's looking around. He's like, so, uh, so I've been around these kind of things before. And I see, I see the wood. 
see the fire, see the knife, but don't see the animal that's supposed to be there. Dad, something's missing. <laughs> What's going on? Where, where's the thing missing? So you can see as he's putting it all together, he's like, uh, Dad, something's missing. Verse 7, uh, Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, son. Behold the fire and the wood. Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham says this. Now, don't miss what's happening in verse 8. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. They went both of them together. So we can read that uh, by him just saying, well, he doesn't want his son to freak out. And so what he does is, instead of keeping his son from freaking out, he tells him this little white lie. Like, everything's going to be fine, son. God's going to provide something. So you don't need to, like, it's really you, but I don't want to tell you. So I'm just going to say, like, God's going to provide. Little white lie, no big deal. It's not, it's not that at all. We shouldn't, we shouldn't read into the text that Abraham tells a white lie to quell the fears of his son. Instead, we should read into the text what's been told of us all along, that Abraham is a man of great faith. We already know that Hebrews told us that God will raise him for the dead, or maybe he thought God will provide something. And so when he says, God will provide, this is a man of faith saying, God's going to provide, son. God's going to provide, which highlights for us again the amazing faith that Abraham has. Verse 9, when they came to the place um, of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there. And laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Number two. Number two, provision of sacrifice teaches this. Obey all that God asks you to do. In the provision of the sacrifice, we see a father obeying God because he trusts him so much that he literally is obeying in every single detail that God tells him. The same is true for us in our lives. We are commanded by God to obey him in every single detail of our lives. Everything that's going on, we need to obey God. Now, uh, I want to I make sure I, I help us understand what I mean by obey. So, like, we can kind of go one in two different directions when we say obey. And uh, there's one I think is a little bit easier for us in all of our minds. Me too. We'll go this way and try to work out obedience this way. And there's this other one which is more difficult. And we, we tend to, at least I tend to, not to take my mind to this side first. So, let's talk about what this is. When we say obey God in every detail, I will want things to be easy for me. And so I'll go over here and I'll say, God wants me to obey him in every detail. So what that means is in the really hard situations where I could do one thing or the other and both are good, I just got to search out for this mysterious level of obedience to do it. Like, should I take this job? I could take this job or this job. Which one's right? Oh, I want to obey God here. Or should I um, move to this city? I really want to obey God here. Should it be that city or that city? Or, really, or should, I, should I move to this house? And we, we like to think usually when we hear obey God in every detail, and I really want to do that, we can go over to those things that are a little bit more nebulous, like tough to reach that like my prayer life has got to be like all the way up to be able to get this right. And, and that's good. And that's possible. And that's a way to think about obedience. And I'm fine with that. I think that we all should really strive to obey God in every detail of our life and those kinds of things. But I think there's a whole other side of obedience that maybe not all of our minds, including me, goes to ob- uh, immediately, which are the direct commandments of the Bible. Obey God in every detail means be holy. You should be holy. You should seek after holiness and not let sin be in your life. Or um, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. 
that's a command. We need to obey God in every detail of our life by actively telling people about Jesus. And if we're not doing that, we're disobeying that. Obey God in every detail isn't just the try to really figure out his will, which is fine. We need to do that. But it's also just these other things, which is be holy. Tell people about Jesus. You know, love your children well or be kind to your neighbor. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Like there's these direct commandments that God tells us and he wants us to obey them as well. Obey them as well. When we get to verse 9, I also want to make sure we don't miss something which is... It's mind-blowing. And I think ultimately it points us to Jesus. So watch this. And this kind of, this kind of narrative, like, for, for my brain messes me up. Verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order. And then watch this. Watch how Moses just zooms straight through the narrative, straight to the knife. Like, I feel like this would be hours, right? And in the end of verse 9, he gets to the knife up right at verse 10. And then he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. And Abraham reached out his knife and took the knife. I'm like, wait, 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 stop. Pause. <laughs> Could we go back to verse 9? And I just want to ask the question, how, how did that happen? Wait, we're building wood and Moses, you speed to the knife in the narrative. How, how did this part happen? How did, how did the conversation go with Isaac where you bind him and lay him on the altar on top of the... Hey, son, I got, a, I got a request. Let's play a game. Let's play you lay on the wood and I tie you up and I start burning you to death. But it sounds like a fun... Like, how, how does that happen? Well, I don't think it went that way. I, obviously, I'm, I'm kidding around because I'm trying to make a point here. Moses goes through that pretty quickly to get to... Moses, the writer of Genesis, gets to the text where the knife is up, which is an important part. But I think we need to look at that and think about this for a second. Um, he laid him. He laid him on the wood, on top of the wood, and he bound him. How does this happen? Bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the wood of the altar. Well, we've already covered. Isaac's a big dude. He's not a wee little lad. He's putting everything together. He's big enough to carry the wood up. So he's probably stronger than Abraham. Like, if they don't want to get on the wood, I'm not going to get on the wood, Abraham, and you can't stop me. I carried the wood up here. You carried the knife. Like, so I think what happens is he tells his son, Isaac, I want you to lay on the wood and I'm going to bound you. And Isaac willingly lays his life down on the wood and says, okay, dad, I'm going to obey you. This points us to Christ. This is a prefiguring of what Jesus... Jesus didn't fight God the Father and say, no, no, no. I'm not getting on that cross. Like Isaac, Jesus obeys God the Father and lays himself down on the cross for us and spreads his arms wide, willingly going to the cross. Now, there's a different story here. Isaac is spared, but Jesus willingly gives up his life for us. Isaac points us to Jesus. And for Abraham in this moment, as he's telling him to do it, it doesn't make, I, I can't imagine it makes sense to him as he's laying him on there. I don't, I don't know how this doesn't make sense, God. I'm trusting you. I don't know how this is going to happen. I know that you can raise him from the dead. So I'm trusting you, but I'm going to, as he's binding him here, he's obeying even when it doesn't make sense. So when we're talking about obedience, obey God, all I ask you to do, obey God in every detail, but obey God when it doesn't make sense to obey. Like the Lord tells me to do this, I'm going to do it because he's infinitely wiser than us. 
infinitely more good than we are. More good? That's probably not the right way to say it. I make up English language grammar as I go. So, um, but we need to obey God in every detail. Even obey God when it doesn't make sense. Isaac was prefiguring Christ and willingly laying down his life. And so as we see this, since Jesus obeyed God the Father's will and went to the cross and died, then we can, by his spirit, um, obey God in every detail of our life and obey God when it doesn't make sense. Jesus' obedience gives us the ability by the power of the Holy Spirit to obey like Jesus. So the provision of Christ gives us the ability to do the the obeying that God actually commands from us. That's amazing. I will say that again just so you don't miss what I'm saying. You think, and I think, obedience is hard. Jesus, obeying God the Father all the way to the cross, thereby saving us, gives us, because of the Holy Spirit, now the power and the ability to obey the very commands that God tells us to do. That's astounding. That's just astounding. So here we are in verse 10. He obeys him even when things don't make sense. Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But boom, here we know that we love this part, right? The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, right there. And he said, here I am. He's like, oh, thank the Lord. Um, look, thank you. Uh, and then he says, don't lay a hand on your boy or do anything. For now I know that you fear God. He already knew, but he's helping Abraham see uh, that he trusts him. Seeing you have not withheld your son. Now, in the Old Testament, when we have angels appear, Sometimes we have angels appear and they're angels, but sometimes we have angels appear and they're actually the pre-incarnate Christ. And you have to read and know, I think this particular text is the pre-incarnate Christ. So this is Jesus making an appearance as the angel of the Lord. And I think that's because of the way the words, the, the words that he says, the way that this angel talks are words that God would use, not just an angel. Watch. So he says, to him, do not lay a hand on the boy or anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from, doesn't say Yahweh, he says from me. Jesus is God. And so Jesus shows up here and says, I see that you fear God and you don't need to do this. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. Calvin says the ram was presented there by miracle as the substitution. And so here, uh, the third thing that we can see is this regard to a provision is this, this is maybe the most important one. You can trust God for provision for the sacrifice. Uh, You can trust God for the provision, namely for our sin. This ram was put forward in this moment as the provision to save Isaac, the offspring, the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent from Isaac, Eventually, Jesus is born. He's the serpent stomper, the serpent crusher is going to be preserved. And so since God provides here for the sacrifice, we can then therefore trust God for us. Jesus is our sacrifice. We can trust him. And so here we have the ram and we have Isaac, both prefiguring Christ, but in two different ways. So I should stop and try to help us understand uh, something. All of the Old Testament... 
all these stories are not just kind of random hodgepodge of stories that are kind of like little islands in and of themselves that don't connect. They're not just Noah and Abraham and all these stories that kind of go on in the Old Testament. They're not random hodgepodge stories that sit as islands of themselves. They all have a, a thread and a connection running to them. Namely, that every story you read in the Old Testament is pointing you to Jesus. So when we look at the cross, if we're on this side and we're looking back at the Old Testament, every one of the Old Testament stories are all pointing us to Christ. And they're all kind of slivers and slices. But if you collect all those Old Testament stories together, they all tell the story of Jesus. They don't tell the full story, but they all tell a story of Jesus. So the ram is a sliver pointing us to Christ, but just a sliver. And Isaac is a sliver and David is a sliver and Noah is a sliver and on down the line. Every Old Testament story, when you take all of them collectively together, they help us get a full picture of who Jesus is. And this is just, this is the same. So you have the ram and you have Isaac and they both prefigure uh, or that prefigure just means they, they tell a little bit of the story of Christ, not the whole story, but some. And Isaac uh, prefigures Christ in this way as he prefigures Christ as the son that was going to be put forward by the father as a sacrifice. Just like Jesus was. Jesus was put forward by God the father as a sacrifice. But the story is different because you have the ram. The ram prefigures Christ as the one that takes the place of someone else. So since the ram was put forward as the uh, substitute... Isaac gets to live now, who Isaac represents Israel, all God's people. Isaac gets to live because the sacrifice was made. And because Jesus came, he takes our place and the people of God, not Israel, but the church, us, we get to live because the sacrifice of Jesus was made. So the ram tells the story of what's going on. Jesus takes our place on the cross, crushing in the head of the snake in victory and the resurrection where he is ultimately raised from the dead three days later is the stomping and crushing of the head of the serpent where all of the world gets to see God is now victorious over everything. And so Isaac and the ram tell this story for us in some way, which shows us that you can trust God for the provision of sin. In that moment, Abraham realizes all along when he says, I'm going to trust God, I'm going to trust God. And then God provides, he realizes, I definitely can trust God. And that helps us understand this. Since God has given us his son, you can trust God. If God has taken care of the most important thing in your life, namely, in my life, namely, our sin, by putting his own son forward for us, then we certainly can trust him with everything else. The most important thing has been taken care of. Which brings us on to this next section. So Abraham lifted his eyes, he saw the ram. So Abraham called that that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now, most people just kind of stop there and like, all right, there it is. There's a story. God provided. But I think it's helpful to, to read 15 through 19 because it helps us see the rest of the story. It helps us see where God comes and reiterates the covenant again, helps us reminds us of this glorious covenant that he's already said in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17. He's going to say it again in 22. The angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son. And then he tells him of the blessings that are going to come to him. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and the sand that on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies 
And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have uh, obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned with his young man and they arose and they went to Beersheba and he lived in Beersheba. So that brings us to the fourth thing that we see, which is for Abraham, because he trusts the provision, there's rich blessing and trusting God and putting our faith in him. And for us, it's the same thing. So Abraham experiences um, God blesses his obedience and God blesses him more than he could ever thought of by giving him these amazing promises in verse 17. The same is true for us. There's, there's literal blessing for you when you trust God. Whenever we trust the provision of Christ for us, we are now blessed because God has um, chosen to bless whenever we obey. And also, he blesses us more than we could ever think of. I can think of two ways for sure. These immediate blessings that he gives us. One, when we trust in Christ as our provision for our sacrifice, he blesses us with forgiveness of sins. If, if you got saved later on in life and you have walked around this earth with the weight of sin on your shoulders, then you understand just how devastating it can be as you're walking, knowing I have this weight of sin on my shoulders and it will not break free from me. I need to be forgiven of sin. And when the forgiveness of Christ comes to you and you are forgiven of your sin, you, you just, you're amazed by it and can't get over it. This is an amazing blessing that God looks at you and says, your sin is forgiven. And then it's just gone. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's a second blessing that we know, not just forgiveness of sin. And the second is even better. If the first is amazing, the second is even better when he blesses us. Namely, whenever he gives us eternal life. So we're not just going to live this life and then die and go take a dirt nap and that's it. We don't know what's going to happen anymore and we're done. Like after we die, we go to heaven forever and live forever with Jesus, the savior of our soul. That's an amazing blessing that he gives us. So he blesses us more than we could ever thought of, think of. And here we see these blessings that he gives to Abraham. I want to make sure you see it. So it's not just immediately as you read the text, as you read it, you can think, oh, uh, he's just going to bless him with a whole lot of family. Look what he says in 17. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply. Notice the key word as the Old Testament. You are ideal Old Testament readers now. You know offspring means sex. That's it. That's it. We know offspring is the key word. So watch this. How many times he uses offspring? I will surely bless you and I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and the sand is on the seashore. Now when we read that, we're like, okay, wait. That sounds like a lot of offspring because there's Jesus and there's a whole lot of people that are related to Abraham. He must just be talking in the plural. Like this is all talking about all the people that the people of Israel. It's just them. And then keep going. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. Like, oh, he's just talking about all of Abraham's children. That's what he's talking about. Grandchildren, grandchildren, grandchildren. You know what I mean? So when you read that, you're like, well, Maybe it's not about Jesus. Maybe it's just the fact that he gets to be the dad of Israel and all of them get to be the people of God and they get to be better than all the nations and possess the land. Well, Paul does not want us to read it exclusively just like that. He wants us, sure it's that, but there's more to it. So I want to make sure you see this. This is Galatians chapter three. Last week, last service, I was in Ephesians. I'm like, I cannot find it. This because I was in the wrong book, but I'm going to get in the right book this time. So if you look at Galatians chapter three, here's what Paul tells us. And he is harping on this to make sure we do not misunderstand Genesis chapter 22, verse 17. Um, 
So in Galatians chapter 3, this is what Paul writes. Verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, Paul writes. It does not say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring. And you're like, what is Paul talking about? Well, he gets really explicit. Who is Christ? So he wants us to know right here. In Genesis twenty two seventeen, and he's looking at Abraham. This blessing beyond he could even comprehend is saying, Abraham, you're going to have lots of children and they're going to be my people. But here's the greatest blessing of it all. Grand, 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 when you get down, you know what? The Messiah, the snake crusher, he's going to be one of your offspring. The savior of the world is going to come from you. That's blessings beyond comprehension. The same is being offered to us, not in the same way, but nevertheless being offered to us. Jesus offers us eternal life forever. This is just absolutely amazing. Now, as I said in the beginning, Christmas time is where we celebrate the birth of Jesus. And it's meant for us, like those who were thinking about the coming Messiah, we're to put ourselves in the place and think about this coming Messiah who's supposed to come. And then whenever he's born, think about that time, whenever the Messiah is born, there was great rejoicing all around. We're like, the Messiah is here. Christmas time and Christmas series and Christmas sermons are for the same purpose. When we hear this provision that's been given to us, it's given to us. This sermon and texts like this are meant to point us to the fact that we are supposed to rejoice because of this. So you've heard probably thousands of times, if you're a believer in Christ, Jesus was given to you as a sacrifice. And now that he's a sacrifice, you get forgiveness of sins and you receive eternal life. And you're like, ah, I've heard that story. Ho-hum, whatever. Let me go watch something on Netflix I've never seen. Klaus is out. I hear that's good and new. Or maybe I can watch Elf again. It's been a year, so I can't remember the story great and I'll laugh. Those things are fine. Whatever. Watch those things with your family. Laugh. Home Alone. All the... Christmas movies. But listen, those things are not going to bring you ultimate joy. And because week in and week out, we get here and we talk about the gospel and we talk about the provision of Christ. It's not meant to hear that to where we like, oh yeah, I've heard that now. It doesn't, it doesn't hit my heart anymore. Like it used to, I've gotten used to that. I, you know, the message of the gospel hits a cold heart now, Fudd. So I don't know what to tell you. Christmas season in every sermon is not meant to hit a cold heart. Rejoicing in the good news of the gospel is your choice. It's my choice. And we hear these things and it's meant for us to decide. I'm going to choose to rejoice over this. This is unbelievable news. My heart should well up and go crazy because God loves me this much. I cannot believe this. This is unbelievable news. And so. I'm going to, during this Christmas season, as I think on text, as I read text about Jesus, as my heart's directed towards the coming Messiah given for all the sins of the world, I'm going to choose to read these things and not let it hit a cold heart and say, ho-hum, I've heard that story, been there, done that. But instead, I'm going to let it fall onto my heart, plead for the Lord to not let me have a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh that when he hears, when I hear these things, I'm just overwhelmed with gratitude, overwhelmed with gratitude. Pray for that kind of heart this morning. And this whole season and your whole life. This text prepares us for Christmas because it teaches us to look forward to the coming offspring. Like Abraham looked forward to the coming Savior. 
And he was glad. That's what it says in John 5. He was glad. And we should do the same. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this amazing story of the offspring that comes and finally sets us all free by going to the cross. Thank you for Jesus. Help us, Lord, be eternally grateful for the fact that you, Jesus, willingly laid down your life on the cross. You got on the wood, the piece of wood, and there was no substitute for you. You were the substitute, the substitutionary atonement, the one who makes atonement for us, Jesus in our place. And now by faith, like Abraham, we put our faith in you and then you give us your righteousness. Thank you for that, God. Help us um, this Christmas season rejoice in this amazing truth. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.